also, uh, ever since I can remember, uh, probably age 10 or so, I've been fascinated by the question of why people act in ways that they regret later or almost immediately in many ways. And uh, that preoccupation really started with seeing the uh, uh, society in which I lived where people felt very comfortable and very much in control uh, collapse within a few years uh, towards the end of World War II and I saw how many of my relatives and friends of friends and my own brother uh, being killed and, and uh, uh, houses and businesses and uh, careers and lives disrupted completely by the war and and I was struck by how completely unprepared the people I knew, the adults I knew, were for this event. For instance, I, in 1944, we were in my grandfather's place in Budapest, and he was a highly um, uh, a high employee of the, of the foreign office, and he knew practically anything anybody else knew about the war and about conditions. And he was sure that the Russians would be defeated uh, very soon and things would return to normal. And uh, at that time I went down to play with the janitor's son, uh, who was uh, my age. And the janitor's son really knew a lot more about what actually turned out to happen than the adults, uh, highly placed adults that I knew. Uh, who were in complete denial. They didn't know what was going to happen. So that kind of experience got me interested in understanding how people end up living lives that are um, either based on faulty assumptions or on denial versus lives which are in touch with reality and, and uh, uh, where they are in control to a certain extent, where you can feel that what you're doing makes sense to you and it's based on uh, not on deception, self-deception and so forth. So uh, that led me, uh, after trying to do things in religion, philosophy, arts, literature, uh, I wrote for newspapers, I uh, worked uh, in institutions that were, had this very traditional uh, wisdom embedded in them sometimes uh, in Europe. But none of that seemed to really deal with what was going on. Uh, it all assumed certain things about people which I had reason to suspect was were wrong. That is, uh, they had to uh, they were based on ideology or certain, uh, uh, if nothing else, some matters of taste and philosophy, if that ideology. But they weren't really in touch with what I experienced life to be. So that drove me into psychology. And, and that kind of question that I started out with is still um, behind the, the work I do. Um, for instance, currently, in the past few years, we have been uh, doing a set of 
studies with colleagues, uh, Howard Gardner at Harvard and William Damon at Stanford, uh, studies focused on the question of good work. Why some people, some professions are uh, able to or allow or stimulate people to do work that is both excellent in terms of the um, traditions of the particular profession and also good in the sense that it's helpful to society and uh, ethically responsible. And here again, some of the same questions that I started out with so long ago uh, come to the fore, namely that many professionals in law, medicine, science, even higher education, uh, live in a kind of a world of uh, make-believe in many ways where they think that what they do is right in, and yet uh, when you see the, the consequences and you see how other people outside of that sphere of uh, interest group perceive that work, they don't feel that it's good at all. And so that, uh, what kind of social safeguards can you bring to bear on people's work that would make the work enjoyable and at the same time useful to society? And um, the question, uh, this part of what we encounter in these various profession is a problem that I think presents perhaps the most fundamental question uh, of for the future as far as I can see. And that problem is the fact of how in very disparate professions the whole notion of success or performance is being collapsed in, into very short-term financial uh, results. In other words, uh, whether you're a newspaper man or a, or a, a researcher in genetics or a professor or a lawyer, you are being judged by standards of immediate uh, financial benefit to the institution and to, to the colleagues with whom you work, as well as your own. I mean, we, we are guilty of adopting the same perspective, I think, as these institutions. That is, for instance, uh, we, we don't really care much about how our money is invested as long as we get returns that uh, are reasonable by the standards of the market. But if, if our um, returns from funds we invest drop a few, uh, percentile points, uh, everybody's willing to move to another manager because uh, that's the only standard we have is, you know, what's the return? And whether the return is, is based on uh, ethical or, or humane practices or not, that's no, we, we can worry about that. So the question of how to have a, a way of supplementing the financial return with other criteria of performance or success, I think is a, a major issue that we are going to face in the future. Otherwise, 
uh, we are going to be reduced to a, a kind of a culture of greed, which is uh, in the long run, I think, self-destructive as well as destructive of other countries. Yeah, I think I think uh, I agree with uh, many uh, sociologists like Max Weber, for instance, who also claim that uh, there was always uh, a culture of greed. Uh, uh, that is, people are always trying to maximize benefits, but there have been social uh, obstacles to realizing this uh, most of the time. You know, there are periods when it becomes blatant, and then there are periods when other considerations, whether it's religion or patriotism or notion of honor or notion of community, begins to mitigate this kind of self, um, uh, this uh, single-minded um, attempt to reduce everything to very uh, to a single kind of currency, uh, financial currency. So, no, I, I, I think human nature, whatever that is, but human nature hasn't changed that much in uh, the past few hundred thousand years. But what can be changed is the culture in which this humans act and the kind of social... Uh, requirements that can stand in the way of, of just looking at uh, material success as the only uh, criterion of, of whether a person is worthy or not. Uh, this problem was not really on my radar screen too much, I mean, except as uh, occasionally I felt that as a citizen or whatever, that things were that the spread between incomes is increasing and it's creating uh, instability, which has been the downfall of whether it's Russia or France or China. You know, uh, it always starts with a polarization of income and and then. Uh, ends up in a revolution which doesn't do anything, doesn't resolve anything, but it's a natural kind of reaction. So I was aware of this, but didn't really uh, concern me professionally. But uh, as we started doing this good work research um, about seven years ago, I think, we keep running against this issue again and again. People saying, you know, newspaper peop, uh, reporters saying, uh, newspaper editors saying, you know, we used to, we used to uh, be considered successful if we had a four percent return on investment, and in, uh, you know, twenty five years ago, four percent was okay because. The people who invested in the newspaper were not uh, expecting it to be a cash cow. It was really, uh, uh, they felt that they had an impact on the community. They felt they had advancing their ideas to the paper, etc., etc. So, it, you know, the money was only part of it. But now most newspapers are owned by corporate uh, uh, 
uh, enormous uh, multinationals where nobody really cares what's in the paper as long as it turns a, a return. And now 21% is considered essentially the bottom of what you can That's do. That's a real number? That's a real number. 21%? Yeah. I'll take that. Uh, and in order to do that, then the editors, managers have to fall over themselves trying to trying to um, uh, you have all these weird things like you can make only two long distance calls per four inches of text that you're writing or something you know and uh, some papers have these kind of things and others are not even try to to make long distance calls. You know, you, you just turn to uh, whatever, whoever feeds you information. You print. So this this is what happens in, in the media. No, I think I think this story could be multiplied by a thousand fold, uh, and it reaches up to places like you know, medical research, genetic research, uh, where the same issues are are. At work, uh, that people are taking shortcuts, they are uh, cutting corners, they are taking, take, uh, making decisions that they know in the long run they may regret. But um, since all it matters is the quarterly returns or the yearly uh, salary, they're hey. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, what's missing here, it seems to me, is some kind of. Um, at least an alternative. I see in the past people could feel rewarded by um, being essentially good citizens, up, upstanding citizens in their community. They, they could be rewarded by having uh, a large family where they played an, a role by being uh, by feeling that somehow, even though they're not succeeding in this world, they will be happy in the next world, etc. So there were alternatives. Uh, none of, uh, many of these were essentially uh, self-deceptions too, but, but they were um, kind of taking the brunt away from this just single uh, goal that is becoming so pervasive. So. It's, um, we need, I think, to develop uh, something else that would get people to feel that what they're doing is meaningful and hopefully not something deceptive, but something not deceptive, uh, like, uh, you know, believing that the uh, good Lord is going to reward you for being uh, poor or something, you know. No, possessions can be really draining of energy in so many ways. I mean, the more things you own, the more preoccupations you have, it's true. And, and um, some, to, to know what is the... Uh, the problem is that most people don't see what else can they, they can do, you know. I mean, uh, they have no goal beyond uh, material comfort and, and extravagant spending. You know? There was this book um, written in the, I guess, uh, late 60s by a Swedish 
economist who then became president of Sweden for a while, uh, 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 Stephen. Uh, oh gosh! But anyway, it was called the Harried Leisure Class, and he he had this beautiful set of formula that predicted how how expensive you have to be in your leisure time if you want to make your time a word of what you could make in the same period of time. In other words, if on the average you make um, $1,000 an hour, you you wouldn't you would feel cheated in your free time if you didn't spend a thousand dollars because it means that you you were underutilizing your free time and uh, at first it sounds counterintuitive but he's showing how people are driven to higher and higher and more crazy expenses because in order to balance their uh, income during the same period with the expense when they're free, and it's 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 kind of a trap that I think a lot of people fall into. Well, I think the the kind of uh, stuff I've been since the publication of the evolving self, which was I think ninety three or about ten eleven years ago. Um, I I'd been more and more concerned about the possibility of making people realize that whatever they do is in a way shaping the future and shaping what is going to be in the, uh, uh, what what direction evolution will be taking and obviously the choices people make uh, may be minute and, and completely invisible at first, but certainly, if you begin to think that that you are part of this chain of responsibility or or, or a power that will determine the future, it, it could make a difference. And then somebody has to begin to say, "Okay, so what damn future do we want? Now, what is it that we are really getting to?" And for some people, this is very immediate. I mean, the genetic, human genetic people we talk to and interview, they have to face that very soon. I mean, you know, what kind of designer babies are they going to make? They, they are at one end of, of the decision-making, but uh, those they deal with genes. Then there are those of us who deal with memes, and the kind of memes we develop also will impact the way people think in the future. So, I mean, that, those, how we change genes and memes are obviously implicated in the, in the shape of the future. But then, I mean, even, even the cab driver or the uh, person working in a factory outlet ha can influence whether this is going to be a more civil or a less civil society. And and if we cleared up the goals, what, what makes people's life happy? What makes people really happy and, and, uh, and feeling that their life is not wasted? If we clarify those issues and began to develop 
some form of either recognition or um, see you don't want to control I mean Giuliani tried to do that here right uh, so that that's one way of doing it and maybe some of that is needed but it's not uh, it's not the way to do it obviously you have to do a positive you have to develop some kind of positive uh, goals that to goals to which the people like us abide by too not not just for the whole Polarian so anyway we are doing a study of um, 12 schools uh, uh, undergraduate universities that uh, were nominated as being um, the best in the country in their genre whether it's historical black colleges community colleges uh, research one institutions and so we have been interviewing staff and faculty at these schools who were in turn nominated internally that is we wrote to 10 percent of the faculty let's say on university a and ask them who made your school so good that it's nominated to be one of the best and so we got hundreds of nominations from each school this person runs the cafeteria that is so good that people just love uh, to be here or this professor who is world famous for uh, doing literary criticism whatever so then we interviewed those uh, 10 of the people who have been nominated uh, as being uh, instrumental in making the school so good. And we asked them what they feel they want to accomplish in undergraduate education, what the new challenges are that they see coming, and what obstacles they see, etc. And then now we are interviewing the students to see what are their perceptions how their perceptions match with the gatekeepers at the institutions they learn. Yeah, I never, I never thought, uh, I never resolved my identity very much. I mean, I, I'm partly a social psychologist, I'm a developmental psychologist, but developmental, social. Um, I was for five years in a department of sociology and anthropology and I became chairman of that department so I, I'm rather interdisciplinary in my Yeah, for instance this study I just mentioned of the best universities uh, we have uh, about 120 interviews which are very long which I or my usually my staff of graduate students uh, do the interviews and then these are transcribed, put in a computer. The transcripts are analyzed by uh, software like Nudist or some other uh, software which where you can say I want to hear every time the person talks about creativity or about jobs or about money or whatever and then you can begin to parse the interview into uh, sections and you can begin to code those sections and we have numeric uh, numbers for instance how often is this person mentioning the importance of 
getting good jobs for students as being important versus how important it is the liberal art tradition to be transmitted or whatever. So we have all these numbers. Uh, and then with the, so we have two, essentially two ways of doing it. One is quantitative where we show bar graphs or uh, whatever of how important certain elements of education are in different schools and by different types of teachers and so forth. So the quantitative, uh, you can analyze statistically and come up with some conclusions. And then there is a lot of qualitative data where you can uh, use quotes and interpret quotes from, from the people you, you interview. So that's, that's one thing. But we have also, we are doing very quantitative studies. For instance, one of my students who is now writing up a series of articles based on a study of chess games on the internet. And there he got a hundred chess players who play regularly on the internet to agree to fill out online a um, series of questions about the game they just played. And because chess players have very good uh, uh, ways of assessing the skill in chess is a you know, four-digit number that describes your skill, which changes with every game. It's like tennis rating or whatever. So he's within a week he got uh, almost 2,000 games and the descriptions of how the person felt during the game and we are relating their experience of the game to for uh, the discrepancy between the skill of the opponent and the skill of the player which is based on the rating and it's based also on analysis of the game where move by move you can assess who is ahead in the game and so that is a kind of elegant way to study the effect of a discrepancy in, in uh, challenge and skill, which is based, basic, one of the basic uh, elements of the flow model, the flow theory that I've been working with a long time. So that's one type of um, study, much more quantitative, much more analytic. Um, another uh, project that we just finished and actually this is done by some of my students, but it's a very intriguing study, uh, which I started, but they are writing up. Here, we identified three of the leading geneticists in, in the country. We interviewed them. Then we interviewed three of their major students, who are also geneticists. And then we interviewed four of the students of each of these nine second levels. Uh, so we have three generations of, of uh, geneticists in three different lineages. And we're trying to see how the ideas and knowledge and values are being transmitted from one generation to the other. So, in a sense, it's an attempt to do for memes what 
we do now so easily for genes. That is, what memes, what ideas and basic ways of looking at the world are being transmitted from from one generation to the other. And that's going to be a good book. Yeah, it, what we're working with is not as clean cut as what you usually find in a laboratory or um, uh, but it's it's a very interesting because for instance this chess thing on the internet is almost as controlled as you could do it in a lab except here it's real because these people would play anyway I mean they are playing and the only difference is that they fill out this thing at the end but we don't force them into these situations because in labs unfortunately human behavior gets very often distorted completely by the setting, you know. And so what you learn in the lab is elegant, but it's not, doesn't transfer to reality. Whereas I'm trying to always keep as close to what people are actually doing in, in normal life rather than force them into a lab to do that. The um, work that I'm best known for, of course, is the flow model, the flow theory, the, the studies of flow experience. Uh, the book Flow now, it's been, to, I guess, the 20th translation in 20th language after 14 years, I guess, that it's been out. And people have replicated the studies all over the world and that has influenced so many schools and factories and offices and even political systems. So anyway, um, how did that start with? It's probably it started again. If I were if I were to try to go back to the origins, I, I think in a sense it probably started uh, in 1944-45 during when I was 10 years old and the war was uh, creating uh, a lot of anxiety everywhere and I, as a 10 year old I saw you know, the whole world I took for granted crumbling and I realized that when I played chess um, I completely forgot what went on and for hours I had a uh, a great time. Uh, I felt completely involved. My mind was working. My, um, I had to be alert. I had to process the information of what was happening. And I didn't have any chance to be distracted, any chance to worry about anything. And that experience, I also noticed then that if I played against somebody really good, it wasn't much fun. If I played against somebody bad, wasn't fun either. And then you start getting distracted and you start thinking again about other things. But if it was somebody in my own range of abilities, then the game was uh, was fun. Then after we moved to Italy at the end of the war, there I got in uh, with the Boy Scouts and other youth organizations and, and as, as a result of that, I, I started mountain climbing and then rock climbing in the Dolomites, northern Italy, where <clears throat> climbing uh, 
ended up producing the same kind of result of uh, total concentration, focus, a feeling that you were doing everything you could, that your whole being was kind of involved in, and that you forgot everything else. Uh, and there was a lot to that you want to forget because things were going pretty badly after the war for a while when there was no jobs and uh, in 1948 the communists took over in Hungary and we lost whatever little was left in Hungary at the time. So, um, so those experiences uh, became kind of benchmarks of what life could be if if one were to to be able to focus and to get involved to that degree and and I kind of experienced that again um, in other activities like painting I painted a lot when I was in my teens and exhibited a few times in Rome I wrote um, I became the editor of the Italian Boy Scout magazine, and then I wrote for other magazines and, and things like that. At school, I wasn't doing very well, and it wasn't it wasn't much fun. But I did all kinds of other things that were producing a sense of uh, kind of worthwhile life of focused activity. Then, when I came to the U.S. to study psychology, um, I found that nobody really was concerned about these issues. Uh, all psychology was focused on was essentially pathology and partly um, when you looked at normal behavior, it was kind of always reduced to some pathology or other, and, or it was dealt with as something that you learned, like rats learn in a maze. but without any notion that people could actually enjoy life. You know, that was not part of the canon in any sense. So um, when I started teaching uh, uh, back in Lake Forest College, where I was actually in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology, I had a seminar, a senior seminar, in which I said, okay, we'll study play, and not play, ch children's play, but adult play. So let's look at each student was supposed to take one form of adult play and then report back to the class uh, what they learned and so forth. And as we were discussing these reports of uh, editing going from race car driving to basketball to hockey to poker to whatever, you know, um, some things began to coalesce and, and resonate with what I had uh, experienced myself. So I wrote up an article with one of the students that was published in the American Anthropologist, which was more a kind of history of games uh, in uh, cross-cultural his history, and, uh, and put in some of the ideas about flow there. And that, that was probably 68, 69. 
And then when I went to Chicago, I finally had I finally had a group of graduate students who could really do serious work. And there we decided to to study a variety of different uh, like dancing, rock climbing, and then moved into occupations like surgery because people, uh, I, I knew surgeons who say that, you know, surgery was like uh, driving uh, a race car or like skiing or like, uh, and they used metaphors for surgery that were all taken from sports or, or art and and lo and behold, what, what I found was that, in fact, surgeons described doing surgery very similarly to the way musicians describe making music or artists describe painting or poets describing poetry. So out of all this came the notion that it's not really play that makes you feel good, but it's um, the playfulness, which can be in play, but it could be also in a job or a, or a, a religious experience or whatever, that there is a kind of an experience underlying all of these different forms, which is experienced by the person so in such a positive way that you want to do it over and over again, even when there is no benefits except the experience itself. And so that became the flow uh, experience and uh, tried to develop a theory of it and a model of under what conditions it happens. And that has been quite influential now. And, and in fact, it is the basis of this latest thing that I started with Marty Seligman uh, at Penn called Positive Psychology, which is an um, attempt to uh, reintroduce within the, the field a notion that wait, uh, there are human strengths that we need to understand, not just sicknesses. And, so over in Montana, about four years ago, Marty and I decided to write the UNDSM-4. The DSM-4 is the catalog of mental illnesses. If you are a therapist or you have to have a copy of this DSM-4 and you look up the symptoms and say, oh, this guy is bipolar or this guy is chronic depressive. And we said, let's make an UNDSM-4. And that came up. I guess last year, uh, I didn't want to write it, but Chris Peterson and Marty wrote this uh, book, which is essentially uh, the first step towards developing a category of positive aspects of human behavior. So, so it, it's, in a way, it has worked out, not the way I expected 50 years ago, but in many ways, it's it's uh, working in that direction. So.